Thank you for listening to the Servants of Christ Jesus podcast. Today's talk from NCYC on Discipline is from Father Paul Casca. To support the Servants of Christ Jesus, please visit scjesus.org. It's awesome to have you guys with us today. Why are we here? Well, partly because you get to hear from a Navy SEAL, which is awesome. But part of the reason why we're here is to talk about to talk about discipline and why discipline is important and why the military and some of the virtues that the military instills in human beings are foundational, not just for living a good life in the military, but living a holy life. We are, we're here because there are certain virtues that are necessary in the military that pretty much are necessary as well in the spiritual life. And one of the great opportunities that I've had living in Denver and then also commissioning into the Navy recently is I've gotten to travel both to the Naval Academy, uh, most recently just last week, and then also to the Air Force Academy. I've encountered ROTC cadets at various universities. And one of the things that has stuck out to me in my interactions with college students and high school students, but especially college students, is the amazing gift that ROTC cadets are and the midshipmen at the academy, the Naval Academy are, the cadets at the Air Force Academy, because they have these foundational virtues in their lives. And it doesn't mean that every cadet or midshipman is a saint, but it's those foundational military virtues that then can be built upon. Because sometimes what we struggle with just in our spiritual life in general is things like perseverance or things like the struggle to wake up early to pray. And the cadets and midshipmen and people in the military know what it's like to have to wake up really early when you don't want to wake up. And one of the things that even stuck out to me this summer uh, when I was at officer training was there's four seminarians who were in the chaplain candidate program. And they voluntarily woke up at three in the morning every day alongside me because we had to get our prayer and we had to get mass and, and a holy hour in before our military training started, right? The military training started at five in the morning. So the only way for that to work, because we were training all day long and into the night, was we had to choose the hard thing, choose the difficult thing of waking up early and putting the Lord first. And so the, the idea of having that persistence, that commitment, is foundational in the military, but it's essential as well in trying to live and strive for a holy life. So with that said, I want to hand it over uh, to Captain John Doolittle, uh, somebody I'm happy to be able to call a friend, an amazing man. So, Captain. Okay, uh, it is an absolute honor to be among you all this morning. Um, Anytime I can get in front of high school or college or young, uh, impressionable people and as this nation moves on to the next chapter, uh, it's a huge honor. Um, and before I start, I just want a show of hands. How many people in this room were born before 9-11? How many people in the room were born after 9-11? Wow. Over half the room put hands up on that second question. It's never happened in the history of this country before. We've never been in sustained combat operations for so long. Now I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I'm going to cover a couple of things. Um, first and foremost, I'm going to talk about enduring, persevering, tenacity, you know, this, the reading from Matthew, but he who endures till the end will be saved. Enduring to the end. Notice Matthew didn't say uh, excel to the end, be perfect to the end, be a winner to the end. He says endure, right? So I, I was at the Air Force Academy. Uh, there's eight semesters in college, right? Six of the semesters, I was on academic probation. 
But what that means is for three years of a four-year college education, I was restricted because my grades were horrible. My military performance average was in the tank. I was always in trouble. I did not excel. I did not excel at the Air Force Academy, okay? But I endured, and I made it. And I ended up going to Bud's training. We'll talk about what that is. And, and I endured, and I would argue I didn't excel there either. But so much of life is about what Matthew's talking about right there. So we're going to cover a couple things. We're going to talk about the SEAL team. We're going to talk about BUDS. That's SEAL training. We'll talk a little bit about the organization. Uh, we'll talk about 9-11, a uh, fundraiser that I was involved with, and the lessons I've learned along the way. And then we'll finish it up with the parallels between uh, Father Paul and I at the end there. Okay, so SEAL, sea, air, land. What is it? It's the maritime response component the Special Operations Response Component for the Navy. Every service, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, every service has a Special Operations uh, component. We are the soft component for the Navy. So uh, Army SF, Special Forces, uh, Green Berets, Army Ranger, those are the Special Operations component of the Army. And the Marines and the Air Force, everybody has a soft component. So this is the organization. Along the bottom, those are all the service special operations force components. I know you guys can't see it over here. I apologize. But basically what it shows is there's a four-star command, and in each service component falls under the four-star command, and the naval special warfare component, that, that's, that's where I work. So naval soft special operations forces, that's about 1% of the Navy. That's the main takeaway from the slide that you guys can't see. The SEAL teams are about 1% of the Navy. Uh, the total SOCOM force is 70,000 people. Uh, the SEAL teams about 2,600. Basic underwater demolition school, uh, BUDS. You'll, you'll hear guys in the Navy always talking BUDS this, BUDS that. That's what they're talking about. That's the SEAL training. BUDS is the initial training. It's about six months long. After BUDS, then there's advanced training. The whole thing takes about a year, and then you're awarded uh, a much bigger version of this pin, the, uh, the Navy Trident. Um, slide, please. Actually, can we go back one? So those guys, they're, they're working on small unit leadership. They're, work, they're paddling about that's Coronado, California. One of many, many evolutions that you do while you're in training is uh, paddling these little boats everywhere out in the ocean. And it's a great test of teamwork. Because you got six or seven people in the boat, if you're not all working together, and you get hit by one of those waves, the whole boat flips over, you get bashed into the shore, and you have to do it again. Everything in the teams is about teamwork. You never, ever do something alone. You never do something by yourself. At the beginning with Matthew, we talked about some parallels with life. I would argue that that's a huge parallel for you to take away today, is if you're trying to do things all by yourself, you're wrong. You need to be there for your friend or teammate, and if you're there for them, they'll be there for you when you need them. We'll talk about that a little bit too. Okay, slide. All right, part of first phase is Hell Week. These are all pictures from Hell Week. Um, the attrition rate in BUDS is pretty high. It's somewhere between 70 and 80%. So what that means is 70 to 80% of the guys that start in a BUDS class uh, end up leaving. They either quit or they get medically uh, rolled out. Um, 90% of the people that quit, quit during Hell Week. Okay, so help, what is Hell Week? Hell Week's a bad word for this uh, audience. <laughs> <laughs> but Hell Week is, uh, it's six days long, and it's basically no sleep for six days. You never stop moving. Your, your class is constantly going from one evolution to the next evolution to the next to the next to the next, and then you eat. 
And then you get evidence and evidence from Eve, evidence and evidence from Eve. The sun goes down, it gets cold, the sun comes up, everybody gets happy, the sun goes down, everybody gets upset. And it's nonstop for six days. You learn a lot about yourself and discomfort and pain and misery. And you learn a lot about your teammates when you don't sleep for six days. <laughs> but it's all about enduring. Nobody, nobody in Hell Week is doing great. Very rarely is there somebody that stands out above the crowd and is crushing it by themselves. It's just not possible. When you are at two to three days with no sleep, you, you actually can't do anything by yourself. You need your teammates. See where I'm going with this? You can't do things by yourself. That's part of what we're trying to drill into guys, is you can't you can't be you can't be alone, operating alone. You always gotta work as a team. So after the first phase of okay, well this is <laughs> that's actually a funny picture that the guy in the very front, I don't know who took this picture, it's an old shot, but that's actually me under the boat in the very front there, that good looking guy that looks cold, wet, and miserable, that's me. So, I don't know, I don't know what day that was in Hell Week, but it's definitely Hell Week. Um, the bell on the bottom right, anytime somebody's gonna quit and they, they can't endure anymore, uh, they go and they ring the bell three times, ding, ding, ding. If you ring the bell, uh, you're done. If you change your mind an hour later, done that. If you ring the bell, you're done. That can apply to so much in life, right? There's a lot of things that we all do. There's a lot of things we're all involved with, and they're hard. And they're hard. And I'm talking about physical things, and I'm talking about psychological things, I'm talking about social media, I'm talking about school, parents, whatever. But you gotta be careful because a decision you make in that moment of discomfort can affect you for the rest of your life. One of those guys that rings that bell and they leave and they wake up the next morning and all they want to do is go back to Buds. Sorry, man. You made your decision. It's just a good takeaway for life. All right, then we roll into second phase. Um, those are guys coming out of the water. You guys can't see them. They're coming out of the water. They're wearing uh, uh, oxygen rebreathers. So these are diving rigs where you breathe out. It goes through an oxygen scrubbing assembly, and then you breathe. It turns it all into oxygen and breathe back in. So no bubbles. So it's a, uh, it's a great um, infiltration technique when you're doing uh, what we call ship attack drills, when you're going into a harbor and you want to be undetected, uh, no bubbles, nothing magnetic on the rig. We spend a whole phase of buds training learning how to do that, how to get from point A to point B uh, undetected underwater. That's, uh, that's me and my swim buddy on the bottom right there. Yeah, that good looking guy with all the hair, that's me. Okay, <laughs> next slide. Uh, and then we go into the third phase. We go out to uh, San Clemente Island, small island on the coast of Southern California, and we learn about every weapon in the SEAL inventory. We learn about small unit tactics. We learn about land warfare. We learn how to field strip every one of those weapons with our eyes closed in the water, out of the water. Again, cold, wet, miserable, lots of physical activity, but third phase is all about learning the weapon systems. Um, once you've made it the third phase, the instructors realize, okay, this, this, this individual is gonna make it through, we're gonna do everything we can to help them out. So first phase, wanna get rid of people that can't endure. Second and third phase, we just wanna build everybody up, okay? And then at the end, uh, that's graduation. Uh, what it says for you guys is our class started with 155 people. And there's a picture of 42 in front of a flag that are graduating from my class. And of that 42, uh, 31 were in the original class number of 155. So 31 divided by 155, we had an 80% attrition rate. So 20% of our original guys uh, made it through. I'm that really good looking guy on the right there, <laughs> that, that skinny guy. Okay, next slide. Uh, this is my first platoon. 
Um, that was uh, uh, before 9-11, that was a winter, uh, winter warfare platoon. Um, I put a couple of group shots in here just to reiterate that, um, again, you, you don't do anything by yourself. Everybody in that platoon of 16 people, they all know each other's jobs, okay? Think about that for a second. When you're in an organization, whether you're on a sports team, or you're on a chess team, or you're on, you know, whatever. Whatever, when you're out of school and you're in an organization and you're in a work environment, the more you know about each other, the better you're gonna, the better you're gonna operate. The more that you can build a relationship, build on trust, the better you're gonna operate as an organization. Because when one person goes down, whether it's a sickness or something, something else or something worse, there's always gonna be somebody to step into their shoes to make sure the organization doesn't fail. There's another platoon. Um, this is the platoon I was in Kosovo with when 9-11 uh, happened. When 9-11 happened, everything changed. We used to have an 18-month workup training and then a six-month deployment, right? A year and a half to get ready and six months to deploy. 9-11 happens. Everything changes. That 18-month workup became six months. So six months workup, training, six months deployment. Six months of work. But guess what? That six months of workup training, you're not home for six months because a lot of our training you have to go elsewhere for. So you're really only home about half that time. So you're home for three months and you're gone for nine months. Six of those nine months you're in combat. Stress. Stress on yourself, stress on the family, and we'll come back to that topic. Relationships, these are some pictures of guys I worked with in Afghanistan. Um, every relationship, every time we go overseas and we're working down range, whether it's joint combined training or it's combat operation, we're always working with a host nation can't do anything without partnership with the host nation. And those relationships are built completely on trust. Uh, General Zelawar Zahid on the far left there, every time we left the FOB, the forward operating base in Ghazni province in Afghanistan, that was a year long deployment, he and I became best friends. Because every time we left the compound, he was there with all the Afghan local police forces to escort us anywhere we needed to go, to check the culverts for IEDs so that my guys didn't have to do it. Two years after that picture was taken, he was, uh, he was killed, so he's no longer with us. The guy next to, on the bottom right, uh, that's, uh, let's see if I get it right, Walislav Sahib Musa Khan. <laughs> basically the governor of Ghazni province. Um, without that relationship built on trust, we couldn't operate throughout Ghazni province. Relationships, relationships, trust, trust. You can't succeed in anything without that. Uh, these two pictures, bottom right, is when we opened a school in uh, Ramadi. And on the upper left, that's when um, uh, we re-enlisted a, a, a guy, Pat Roberts, he, uh, the, the point of this slide is to show that when we're overseas, it's, it's not all combat. That happens, but it's very, very small slice of the deployment. A lot of it is continually training, a lot of it is doing things like this, administrative things, like uh, uh, re-enlistments or administrative tasks or uh, a new school opening in the city of Ramadi, that, that picture is in uh, Ramadi, and they needed some just basic daytime security to help them open the school. Easy stuff. That's my favorite picture from all my deployments. It's a bunch of little kids hanging all over me while I'm in my, my office. Slide, please. When I showed up at SEAL Team 2, it was a brand new guy. I walked through the doors at the quarter deck, and there was a guy who obviously had been there for a little while. Uh, he's in flip-flops, PT shorts, you know, gym shorts, and a brown t-shirt. And I'm basically wearing this. <laughs> Brand new guy walking across the corner deck. 
And it, it was Neil, it was Neil Roberts. And Neil said, hey, sir, because he's enlisted, I'm an officer, but I'm a new guy. He'd been in SEAL Team 2 for God knows how long, right? He'd been there a while. He goes, hey, sir, you new guy? Follow me. And he became my mentor. Even though I was an officer, and technically I could have said, hey, you know, I'm an officer, you're, you're an e-dog. Uh-uh, it doesn't work like that. He had the historical perspective. He had the experience. He knew that new guys coming in, whether it was officer or enlisted, the new guys take his take his spot someday. And it's a great feeling when you walk into an organization and somebody takes you under their wing immediately. I would encourage all of you, when you're part of an organization or part of a team, somebody new is coming in, man, put your arm around that person and bring them in. Bring them on the team immediately. Because if you don't do that immediately, that person will start to go south or go sideways. Okay? Social media, high school sports teams, high school club teams, college club teams. It applies to everything. Help the new guys. So, Neil uh, was our first SEAL killed in combat uh, after 9 11. Um, he was on a, a Chinook. They were coming to a, a target up high. They thought everything was clear. Um, two Chinooks coming in, that's the dual rotor uh, helicopters, both of them coming in, Niels was the first one, as they were getting close to setting down about 8 to 10 feet off the ground, an ambush, Taliban ambush had been set up, and they fired a, uh, a shoulder-fired uh, rocket, a rocket RPG, right? Rocket-propelled uh, grenades. <laughs> and it hit Niels' Chinook, and it hit a hydraulic line, and he immediately slipped right off the ramp since he was the first one that was ready to go. And he slipped and uh, fell and uh, Chinook went into a controlled crash down in the valley. Um, there's a long story behind that. There's um, stories of Medal of Honor recipients that set up the rescue to go get Neil. Um, we don't have time to get into all that right now, but what I will say is my buddy Neil uh, was killed on the target uh, there. Every time we go on a deployment, one of the things we do is we write a letter to our family. We seal them in an envelope, and hopefully what happens, you come back to the deployment, and you hand the letters back to everyone in the platoon, everybody in the task unit, and uh, some people keep them, some people burn them. I always burn mine. I never wanted to see it again. Um, but Patty, Neil's, uh, Neil's wife, uh, she shared this with me. This is part of his letter. For all the times I was cold, wet, tired, sore, scared, hungry, and angry, I had a blast. The bad was equally balanced with the good. Thank you. <laughs> he wanted his family to know that he died doing something he loved. And Neil was a buddy of mine. Um, I had some time in Monterey, California where I was doing some follow-on academic stuff, which was very difficult for me. <laughs> Reference the Air Force Academy stuff. <laughs> but, um, but I had some downtime, and I wanted to do something to memorialize Neil and to raise money for the Navy SEAL Foundation. The foundation uh, raises money for surviving spouses, surviving kids, uh, when we have uh, fallen, fallen heroes. Uh, slide, please. So what I did is uh, I talked to Patty, um, Neil's wife, and I said, hey, I, I'm thinking of doing something really cool in memory of Neil. Would you be cool with me swimming the English Channel to raise money for him? And she said, oh, yes, that'd be awesome. You like that. And so um, that's what I did. I took a, a little time off from studies in Monterey, and that's what all these uh, pictures are. Um, that's a whole nother story, the, the English Channel, but uh, I'll just give you the basics. Um, you can't wear a wetsuit. For the count for the English Channel Swimming Association, <laughs> there actually is one of those, for it to actually count, um, all you can have on is a Speedo and a swim cap. 
Um, the water temperature in Dover when uh, I went was 58 in Dover and it warmed up to 61 in uh, France. So obviously pretty chilly. That's about the temperature of the water in Monterey. I spent a lot of time uh, preparing for that swim. Um, got over there, it took me uh, 12 hours, 24 minutes. Uh, really a, a challenging thing physically. But if there's anything you learn when you're going through buds training and those types of things, and this can apply to a lot of difficult things in life, things that you think are difficult physically, everybody in this room has the ability to work and do more than you think you can do. If you think you can only do 20 push-ups, spend a week with me, I guarantee <laughs> after that you'll be doing 22. <laughs> yeah. But you can always do more than you think, always. So I'm halfway across the channel. You go through two tidal shifts when you swim across the English Channel. And when the tides shift, instead of having swells, you get the, the, the waves hitting each other, right? And it turns into a washing machine in the middle of the channel. This sucks. <laughs> but you start, uh, my, my shoulders started hurting. I felt like I was going backwards. All these bad thoughts were in my head, and I was just like, ah. And that guy in the middle, that's my dad, uh, throwing a water bottle out to me so I could get, get something to eat or drink. Um, it was like, they, they were seeing what was happening with me. My stroke cycles were slowing down, and I, I just wasn't looking good. My dad had, had snuck an American flag onto the pilot boat. And my dad and, and, and our buddy Joe, I remember, and it was right when I was at that bottom, just everything seemed to be falling out the bottom. I was like, oh my god, I'm not going to make it. And I breathed over and I looked to my right, and in the winds, my dad and Joe holding the flag in the wind. And I saw that, and it was like, oh my god, okay, this is, this is about something bigger than myself. And I, I would encourage you all, at some point in your lives, try to be part of something that's bigger than, than yourself. Whether that's service in your community, or service to your nation, or whatever. Um, because when I saw that, it was like the pain, it went away. And I finished it, and it was great, great, uh, great thing. So when you finish the, uh, the, the swim, there's a, there's a pub, it's called the White Horse Pub. And when they see you walk in the front door, your big reward for swimming across the English Channel is a free pint of yes. <laughs> and that's it. After that first point, you have to pay for everything. <laughs> and they let you, uh, you can see on the wall, they let you sign the wall, and uh, I wrote in memory uh, of Neil Roberts, John Doolittle, English, England, France, 8604, 12 hours, 24 minutes, USA. And uh, that was one of the cool, cooler things I did while I was in the Navy. All right. Okay, so along the way, what, what, did, I, what did I learn? Go ahead. I learned that hard work is way more important than natural ability, right? We've all been on some sports team or whatever, kickball team, it doesn't matter. We've all been with those people that, are, that have natural ability, right? I'd much rather take somebody who's willing to work hard and have them on my team. Even if they fail, I want somebody that's going to work hard and work through that failure to make themselves better. I don't want somebody that's just full of natural ability and maybe not willing to work hard. Go ahead. <laughs> there was a LeBron James quote there my son always makes me put on there, so I'll read it for Ryan. <laughs> hard work beats talent when talent doesn't when talent doesn't work hard. LeBron James. I'm not a LeBron James fan, but I promise Ryan I put that in. <laughs> okay, a never quit attitude. I learned that a never quit attitude is a force multiplier. When things are going south, 
Who do you want in the room with you? Or who do you want on the team with you? Or who do you want in the boat with you? Do you want a Debbie Downer? Or do you want somebody that's like, hey, this sucks, but we're going to get through this. It's going to be okay. The glass is half full. The glass is not half empty. Right? Attitude. That's a, that's a quote from my, uh, from my favorite chief in the teams. He says, uh, I want the guy who struggles, fails, tries again and again, and learns from his mistakes. Attitude is such a huge piece of that. When you're a brand new person on any kind of organization and you have a good attitude, you might not have the talent yet to bring that organization to the next level, but the attitude is where it all starts. Slide. If you do the small things right, the big things will take care of themselves. When I say that, there's three things, discipline, dedication, and teamwork that I think of. Discipline, to me, it's, we, we have this thing called battle rhythm, right? When you deploy somewhere, as soon as you get off the helicopter and you walk into the talk, into the tactical operations center, before you even put your stuff in your rack or go find where you're sleeping or put your guns away, you walk into the talk and you find out what the battle rhythm is. Because that battle rhythm, whether your deployment's four months, six months, or, or a year, like my last one in Afghanistan, you've got to know what the battle rhythm is. You've got to know what time you're getting up. You've got to know what time meals are. You've got to know what time you're working out. You've got to know all of the routine. Because if you don't know the routine, how can you have the discipline to stick to the routine? Right? I love the make your bed example. One of my old bosses, Admiral Big Bill McRaven, um, he used to say all the time, hey man, it all starts with making your bed when you get out of bed. Now, what? Making your bed? What's that got to do with SEAL operations? He's like, hey, if you can't do the little things right, can't do the little things right. How can you be expected to accomplish operational strategic level operations for the nation? It all is a continual deal. So it starts the most little things count. Make your bed in the morning. Dedication, finding a purpose, right? We just talked about that. Find a purpose. Find something that's bigger than yourself to be part of. And most everyone in this room is Catholic. Most everyone in this room is part of a diocese, part of a parish. Every parish in this nation helps with the needy in the community. I'm here to tell you, being part of that effort, that's part of being some, part of something bigger and better than yourself. All right? Catholics, that's, that's part of our DNA is doing that. But don't forget, sometimes, sometimes we forget. Teamwork. We're going to talk about uh, this again in, in a minute, but uh, just always make yourself available for, for your teammates. Um, there's a lot of ugliness out there. There's a lot of issues that you're all dealing with that I have. Uh, I, I can barely even relate, probably, to the things you're dealing with. I have three kids, two of them are in high school, one's in middle school, and they are all over social media. I try shutting that stuff off, fail. And that, and that stuff can be, especially on my youngest, on my daughter, 12 year old, oh, it can be brutal, brutal. And I know some of you are going through that on the receiving end. Be there for each other to deal with some of that stuff. When I showed up at uh, the Air Force Academy, uh, like, like the slide says for you guys over here, it says, it's okay to lean on your faith in God. Don't shy away from your faith. So many of your teammates are hungry for it and need it. So I showed up at the Air Force Academy. Your freshman year at the Academy, during basic training summer, everybody goes to the church because that's the only place you can sleep in the upperclassmen camp on. <laughs> so did I go to church every day during basic training? Oh, you didn't <laughs> and then basic training and then, and I stopped going to church. Now I went to the SEAL team. 
and we'd be deployed. We'd be away at training. We'd be home. I want to go to church. I want to go to church. Somebody just lean on the light switch there. <laughs> hey, hi guys. Um, so I was I wasn't I wasn't following my faith journey as I should. And then 9-11 happened. Combat stress affects everyone. Anyone that tells you different is lying. Combat stress affects everyone. It affects everyone in different ways. Um, my first combat deployment was to Fallujah. And we got there on a Wednesday. And didn't even think of going to church. We had uh, turnovers. We had a turnover mission. And, and then uh, we didn't have any missions lined up for Sunday. And I heard somebody mention mass. And I was like, Ooh. at breakfast. I was like, oh, there's mass here? It's like, oh, yeah, there's mass. It's Catholic mass. It starts at 830 or whatever. I was like, oh, okay. I'm going to go try that out. It's been a while. <laughs> But in the teens, nobody talks about religion. Nobody talks about belief in a higher being. Nobody talks about God or Jesus. Nobody talks about our faith. It's like it's not cool or something. And so uh, I, I, uh, the, the, the church is like a plywood shack. <laughs> open the door. You open the plywood door. And there's a water bottle hanging from it. And that's how the door keeps shut. It's really hot outside. Um, you know, it's a desert, it's in uh, Fallujah, Iraq. And I walk in, and it's packed, packed, standing room only. And I look around the room, and I recognize the guy from the gym. And I saw a guy from the route clearance team that we had just worked with the day before. And then I saw two guys that I had just had lunch with the day before, or two days before. And then I saw, I saw Scotty, I saw Mike, I saw Jamie. These were guys on my team. I had no idea. No idea these guys were Catholic. And what I would say to you is I was actually hungry for it right then. If somebody had said to me on previous deployments or previous training activities, if somebody had pulled me aside and said, hey man, you're Catholic, right? We got masks tomorrow. You want to go? I would say, yeah, let's go. But nobody was doing that. And I, what I realized when I walked into the church is, wow, I can't miss this anymore. I got to go every Sunday without fail, if not every day when I'm in a combat zone. And they didn't have daily masses, but it actually was cool. It was cool. And I linked up with these guys, and we started talking. The more we talked, the more the talk left the, left the chapel. And it is okay. And I would say, man, you're, you're going to run into all kinds of people. You're surrounded right now by people that are Catholic. But when you go through life, I guarantee you're still surrounded by Catholic or at least Christian. All right? It's okay to talk about it because people want to talk about it, but a lot of them are scared. I was one of them. Right? I spent 25 years in the Navy. Guess how many atheists I know like, that say they are an atheist? 25 years, how many? Any, any guesses? Two. <laughs> I know two guys. Everybody else, they might not be Catholic, but they believe in God. And that's awesome. So it's just something to keep in mind as you're going forward. Uh, go ahead. How are we doing on time? Are we all right? Okay. okay. Um, one of the guys I went to the Air Force Academy with, his name's Joe Price. He was a year behind me at the Academy. Um, we were both, we both went into the Navy, he went into the teams, uh, we were both at SEAL Team 2 together, um, he was a bright, you know, I, I, I was not excelling at, at a lot of my stuff in the Navy, Joe was totally excelling, he was the bright shiny star, he was just on a steep promotion path, and um, Joe had done 14 combat deployments. Now, some of them were only three or four months long, but let that sink in for a second. 14 times 
going to combat and coming home to his family. Going to combat and coming home to his family. 14 times. I don't care how much of a stud you are. I don't care how resilient you think you are. Everybody has a breaking point. Everybody. Everybody in this room has a breaking point. Okay, it's probably the most important topic that we're going to talk about today. So tune in. Stress and burnout are real issues. On his 14th combat deployment, he was the commanding officer of SEAL Team 4, the pinnacle of his career. The, when, when any officer of the teens wants to strive for is to ultimately be a commanding officer of SEAL Team. And that's what he was doing, leading troops in combat in Afghanistan. But he wasn't sleeping. He was completely stressed out. He had lost three guys early on in deployment, and he blamed himself every step of the way, and he ended up taking his own life. Joe killed himself in his room in Afghanistan, overseas, while he was a commanding officer. Everybody is dealing with stress. Now go back. The suicide rate, that happened in 2012. The active duty suicide rate in special operations was the highest rate of any government agency across the country in special operations. And that was the year that, uh, that, that Joe killed himself. That burnout is a real issue. It's everywhere. Depression is a real issue. Anytime somebody says, oh man, it's all, it's all mental, man, just deal with it. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. It's real. And it's real for all of you, too. All this social media crap that's out there, all this negative energy that's coming through your phone, be careful of how much you internalize that. I'm telling you, it can kill you if you're not careful. No, it's good. Leave it there for a Lean on your friends when you need them. Okay? But more importantly, when your friends need you, be there for them. Be there for them and let them know that you're there for them. So important. I talked to Joe. I was in Germany. I had some of his guys working for me. At, at our unit in Germany, and I would talk to Joe once a week on a, a Facebook. It's kind of like a military version of Skype or FaceTime. And I could just see it in his face. It would get worse and worse every time we would talk. Joe felt totally alone out there. And it was really hard for him to lean on his buddy, me, via a, 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 a Facebook kind of Skype type, type thing. Be there for your friends, and they'll be there for you. You might be the only thing between a friend of yours and a senseless tragedy. Okay? I really think that applies to Joe. Slide. I talked about attitude earlier, right? Attitude being a force multiplier. Attitude's contagious. This picture you guys can't see is Dan Kanasen. He's laying in the hospital bed. He just had both legs blown off uh, above the knees, and he's getting awarded the Purple Heart. Was Dan down in the dumps? No. No. Bad stuff happens, right? Bad stuff happens to everyone. Everybody in this room is going to have to deal with death of a loved one, death of a sibling. A tragic accident, losing limbs like, like Dan did. He, he uh, was on patrol, um, and the Taliban initiated an uh, ID. The ID went low order, thank, thank God, because it would have killed the entire platoon, but Dan happened to be right over the detonation point, and it blew both legs up. So uh, Dan goes to the hospital. They, you know, he wakes up, they give him the bad news. He's bummed out for a day or two, and he bounces back. Slide. 
within the next year and a half, Dan had done, I think it was six marathons in his hand wheelchair, and he had qualified for, for the Olympics in Pyeongchang. He got one gold, one bronze, four silver. Every time he was on the podium, he got a medal. Everybody that knows Dan Kanasen, everybody that interacts with Dan Kanasen, his attitude is totally contagious. You cannot be around that man and not be smiling and laughing. He's always cracking jokes. And my point is, you know, there, there's a great guy, he, he's passed away, his name's Jim Rohn, he has this saying I love. You can't change the wind, but you can always change the set of your sails. Right? Bad stuff is going to happen to everybody. What really matters is how you're going to react to the bad stuff that happens to you. So be like Dan. And uh, lastly, from, from my part here, um, most important things in my life are faith, family, and friends. No matter how busy you get with life, especially if you guys leave high school and you go into college, or you leave college and you go into your first job and you just want to crush it, you're all in, all in, all in. Don't forget what's truly important. You guys can't see it, but it's a picture of my family that's up, okay? It's real easy to forget what your real priorities are in, in life. So don't, don't forget about that. So here's the next one. All right. questions for the last 20 minutes or so. John chapter 15 verse 13 says this, greater love has no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. I want to close with a quick story about a fellow seal of, of John's. Uh, Mike Monsoor uh, was a petty officer, so he's an enlisted guy, and was on a deployment and while he was on that deployment, they were uh, dealing with an insurgent operation, and he was working with a, what's called a sniper overwatch operation. It was uh, Mike and then two other guys. And while they were trying to help out another unit, an insurgent basically snuck up on them that they weren't able to detect, ended up throwing a grenade uh, that hit Mike on the chest, and it bounced onto the ground. And Mike, it was sort of like this. So there was two guys, two of his teammates were lying prone as snipers on the ground, and then Mike was over here. And in that split second, he had a decision, right? Because he was close to where he could jump away, right? It was literally like this, where he could jump off away uh, from the grenade and save his own life. But his two teammates had zero chance, right? Because they were laying prone, so they couldn't, jump on the grenade themselves, they were literally at the mercy of the grenade. And so Mike, in this split-second decision, decided to jump on the grenade. So he jumped, absorbed the blast. Mike wasn't killed instantly, but the fact that he jumped on the grenade uh, saved the life of his two teammates. They were uh, seriously injured as well, uh, but his absorption of the blast saved their life. Uh, he ended up being taken to the closest uh, operations center, and there was a Navy chaplain that was there and was able to give him last rites because Mike was a Catholic guy. The interesting thing about the story of Mike uh, doing that is many people don't know that Mike is Catholic. Many people also don't know that Mike is not just a Catholic. He was a devout Catholic. I was talking to a Naval Academy chaplain just last week, and he met another chaplain who was on that particular deployment, 
This chaplain had a purple heart, which meant that this chaplain himself um, had been wounded in combat. And he said Mike was a daily communicant. The other interesting thing about Mike's story is that the day that he died was September 29, 2006. September 29th is the Feast of the Archangels, including Michael. And so Michael gave his life on the Catholic Feast of St. Michael and St. Gabriel, the Archangels. This amazing sacrifice. And so I, I, we don't have a ton of time to, to go more into his story, but I highly recommend to you, if you don't know about Mike Monsoor, you don't know about some of the other uh, people that have received the Medal of Honor uh, during the War on Terror, I encourage you to learn their stories, to not forget their sacrifice. Because we have these amazing examples, not just amongst the seals, but also amongst the saints. St. Maximilian Colby, very similar situation to Michael, where Maximilian is a prisoner at Auschwitz. And during his time of being a prisoner, one of the prisoners escaped. And what the Nazis would do to dis discourage people from trying to escape from Auschwitz is every time one person escapes, they take 10 people and put them in a starvation bunker. And so they go into the barracks to get the 10 guys, and Maximilian is not chosen. Father Maximilian is not chosen in the 10. But there is this one man named Francis. Francis cries out and says, I have a family, I have children, please, please. Maximilian steps forward and offers to take his place in the presence of the commandant of the camp. The commandant surprisingly accepts St. Maximilian's offer. Maximilian then goes uh, to the starvation bunker with the other nine prisoners, and for days and days and days he's there. He's encouraging each of the prisoners. He goes from person to person. He's singing hymns uh, in the starvation bunker. St. Maximilian lasts for about two weeks, from my understanding. He eventually has to be injected with carbolic acid by the Nazis because he wouldn't die. He wouldn't die. And so he gave his life at Auschwitz, laid down his life for another. And we've been talking about it, and John's been talking about this idea of living for something greater than yourself. And that's ultimately the invitation of discipline of living a life for something outside of yourself, sacrificing yourself for the sake of another. That's what the Lord did for us, and that's what we're called to do. And Captain Doolittle and I both believe in you. We believe in you. That's why we're here. That's why we, he flew up from Tampa and I flew up from Colorado, because we believe that you can be great young men and women. But you have to be willing to live for something greater than yourself. You have to be willing to persevere when it gets difficult, to not throw in the towel, to not ring the bell when it gets difficult, but to realize that the Lord is with you. And if the Lord is with you, who can be against you? And so what we want to do right now is we want to have a short time, uh, or a few minutes, I think we've got 20, 15, 20 minutes for Q&A. So with that, if you have a question, uh, we'll just throw up your hand. I'll listen to your question. And then we'll repeat it so everybody hears, and then we'll try to answer as best we can. Please specify if you're asking about a, a question of John or I, or, or either could answer it. So uh, with that said, also want to mention two things very quickly. First, I want to thank Franciscan University of Steubenville, who's the sponsor of this particular session. I'm an alumni from there. Part of my whole reason I'm a priest today and uh, in the U.S. Navy today is because of the formation that I received at Franciscan, so I'm internally, eternally indebted uh, to them. 